Okay, well, we are uh, beginning today uh, our study of John chapter 13, which is um, in some ways one of the more familiar passages of Scripture because it um, even Christian people who are not Christians are familiar with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So what you I hope you can see this. Here mm -hmm. is an introductory slide, and I would like to spend some time on this slide because it gives you uh, the framework for understanding what is going on. There is so much going on in this uh, passage of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. There's there's some literal things that have to be understood. There are a number of figurative things that are going on that must be understood. Jesus is drawing on Old Testament passages and, and fulfilling and living out those passages. I mean, it is, it is an absolutely astonishing passage of Scripture. And in my judgment, at least, because I've heard it preached on a number of times in my life, uh, most, time, most of the time, pastors don't do a very good job in really helping people to understand all that is going on here. And uh, even the way John hints at it, they, they, the disciples, they didn't really get this and understand all this until after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then they started to understand the point Christ was making. And so if you look at the slide with me, the, the background for this slide, I'm sorry, the background for this chapter is the great suffering servant passage of Isaiah, which is, there are five of those from Isaiah 40 through 66. But the, the, the key one for this passage is the suffering servant passage, Isaiah 52, 13 through all of chapter 53 which, uh, again, that is worthy of your study sometime. It's, it's probably one of the most important passages in the Old Testament that focuses on the servant of God, i.e. the Messiah, i.e. Jesus, dying for his people's sin. The servant of God, i.e. Jesus, being the object of the Father's wrath as he pours out his wrath on his Son so that he does not have to do that on those who uh, put their faith in him and so on. And that, that the other aspect of this, that is the suffering servant song of Isaiah, is it, it fulfills and gives additional meaning to Jesus being the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. So that is part of the background. The other background passage is a New Testament passage, which is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And again, I would encourage you to read that sometime and study it. This is the great, they call it the great kenosis passage, but it's where the Apostle Paul is asking the Philippian church to have the same attitude, the same demeanor, the same temperament that Jesus Christ had, a temperament of humility, a, temp a temperament of selflessness, a temperament of agape love. And so he walks through, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, walks through that Jesus who enjoyed the glory and majesty and power of heaven, emptied himself. He surrendered that glory. That's the only thing he surrendered in the incarnation. But he surrendered that glory, added to his deity humanity, came to earth, and in obedience to the Father went to the cross, and then the Father highly exalted him and gave him a name which is above every name, and at that name every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, etc., as you're, you're familiar with that passage. So you see here in Philippians 2, you see in the uh, washing of the disciples' feet an extraordinary demonstration of the humility of the Son of God an extraordinary demonstration of the love of Jesus. And you see the attitudes that he manifests are the attitude, that's what Jesus manifests, are the attitudes he wants his disciples to manifest. So he says to them, and we'll get to that in a minute, I am doing this as an example, a pattern, an archetype of how you are supposed to live your life now a life of self-denial, 
To follow Jesus, to be Jesus' disciple, is to deny oneself, take up the cross, daily follow, etc. That's discipleship. It's not a call to salvation. That's discipleship. And obedience. As Jesus was obedient to the Father, scrupulous obedience. So we are to walk in loving obedience with the Lord Jesus. So these two attitudes that Christ manifests in the washing of the disciples' feet, which corresponds to Philippians 2, uh, is, is important for us. Oh, I get it. He's modeling something for us. He's living out something for us as a pattern that we are to follow. And then the second point I want to make is that, and you will see this as we walk our way through, I'll try to really point it out. There are three purposes that Jesus has. You're going to see this right out of the chute in verse one, but it's a display of agape love. Remember, and really that's redundant to say agape love, but I did it because Agape is a form of love. There are three, actually four terms that the Greeks use for love. Agape is the most unusual. It's the term that is always applied to Christ. It's the great term used in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and so on. It's a self-sacrificing, other-centered, self-denying love. Jesus certainly models that. Second, it's a symbol of salvation. He will talk, especially when he's talking to Peter, but he will talk to the broader group that this symbolizes the washing away of sin. And then finally, it's a model of servanthood. The model of leadership in the Bible is servant leadership. And servanthood is exactly what Jesus modeled here. He is the, he is the model archetype of a servant. Jesus did not lead by bullying and forcing people, hammering over the head. He served people. And as he served, they followed him in droves. And so to me, and that's why I'm putting this now, I thought at first I'm going to go through the passage, teach it, and then throw this up. I'm doing this now so that you can see the framework for understanding this very complicated passage. You say, well, it's an easy passage, just about him washing their feet. There's much, much more going on here. And so first of all, I want you to connect this with these two passages, one old, one new. I want you to understand and look for the two attitudes that Jesus manifests that he wants his followers to manifest. And then there's three purposes. So with all of that said, and that framework now painted, uh, I shouldn't say painted, constructed, let's take a look at the passage. Now, I want you to notice this grammatically, verse one is a difficult verse because it's got clauses dumped on clauses. So let me look at it and read it with you. Now, before the Feast of Passover, remember, we're in Holy Week here in the passage. We're in Passion Week. We're in that week between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, a Passover, the Passover was preceded by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that final day, then the seventh day, would lead to Passover. This is Thursday night. This is what is called in many denominational groups observe this. This is Maundy Thursday. And this is Jesus is, is giving this new commandment to love one another in the context of him washing the disciples' feet. Now, before the Feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, now, throughout our study of the Gospel of John, numerous times the Lord says, my hour has not yet come. Or John, who's writing the Gospel, even say, knowing that his hour had not yet come. Well, now John says he knew his hour had come. This is the culmination of the Incarnation. This is why Jesus came to earth. Now, notice there are, there are several important clauses here, who knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, he has been saying that to the disciples several times. He's going to develop the entire upper room discourse, which is John chapter 14, 15, and 16, on this premise. 
I'm going back to the Father, and this is the change this is going to bring. So, knowing that his hour had come, knowing that he is to depart out of this world to the Father, now look at this clause, having loved his own who were in the world. So, you have all of these introductory phrases and clauses. Now, before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved, this is a preposition or a, a participle clause, having loved his own who were in the world, now the main sentence. He loved them to the end. That's the main sentence. The other ones are all um, introductory phrases and clauses. So if you look at that, having loved his own who are in the world, his own would be those who have responded to him in faith, his disciples, not only the 12, but many, many others, and some of those we've, we've been introduced to in the Gospel of John. He loved them to the end. This is the full extent of his love. There is no end, no termination to the love of Jesus. And so John is using this complicated verse, verse 1, with all these introductory phrases and clauses, with the main clause, the main sentence being, he loved them to the end, that the love of Jesus knows no bounds, knows no boundaries, has no termination, has no end to it. With that framework of love, and the term love there is agape love, what did he do? Verse 2, during supper. Now, this is not, uh, this is, um, you know, supper for you and me in the Western world. We think of that a little bit differently, but this is an evening meal. Normally, the main meal is, is you know, earlier in the day, but anyway, so during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now again, what is John doing? <laughs> Before Jesus acts, he's telling us all these introductory phrases and clauses. So this fantastic verse 1, which stresses the limitless love of Jesus, he wants us to understand something else, a much more nefarious fact. Uh, nefarious means evil, a much more evil fact, that the devil is at work. This cosmic struggle between the Son and Satan is reaching its culmination. Satan has entered Judas, and that is something that the other Gospels, and we're going to read more about this in this chapter, Satan is the supernatural energetic power behind what Judas is doing, and that is going to be manifested in his, his Judas betrayal of Jesus. So you have this fantastic verse 1 introducing the limitless love of Jesus as the context for him washing the defeat. You have, secondly, this nefarious, dastardly, evil comment that Satan's entered Judas, who's about to betray him, then verse 3, he is not done. He wants to make one other introductory comment before he describes Jesus washing the feet. Verse 3, Jesus knowing, and that's a causal participle, because he knew that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So John, fantastic introduction of the limitless love of Jesus, verse 1. Verse 2, the evil aura of his acts, surrounded by the dastardly acts of Satan, filling the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Verse 3, back to another heavy theological context. What is in Jesus' mind? What is Jesus' frame of thought? 
oh, I'm so sad, I'm so sorry, I have to go through all of this. I don't want to do this. Wallowing in self-pity, not at all. Because Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He is the Lord of the universe. He will rule and reign over this rebellious planet. That is what Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm 2, 7, and multiple other Old Testament prophetic texts had promised the Messiah, promised a son. So John is saying, on the mind of Jesus, is that he knows that the Father will fulfill his promise. And therefore, that the Father had sent him, he came from God, and therefore, that he was going back to God, he rose from supper. So, I mean, you just look at that. (laughs) You get to verse 4, when Jesus begins the act of washing the feet of the disciples. But verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3 set the big picture, 100,000-foot view context of what Jesus is about to do. It is an illustration of the limitless love of Jesus. It is a demonstration that despite Satan's entering Judas, who's about to betray him, and that Christ's mind is filled with the promises the Father has made to him, he has an understanding clearly of who he is, why he's here, why he's doing what he's doing, and where he's going. He's come from the Father, who made enormously significant promises to him, and he's going back to the Father. He begins to act out this servant, loving act of self-denial and obedience to the Father by doing something a slave did washing the feet of disciples. All right, now, I spent a lot of time, 15 minutes, more more than 15 minutes, on introducing verse (laughs) 4 through the chart and through uh, what I believe is the best I can do in giving an exposition of verse 1, 2, and 3. Do you understand? Are there questions? Yeah, there, there's. Uh, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, number one um, says during the supper, the devil having already put already put. Um, can the devil put into someone's heart that which he the person refuses to accept, in the sense that we are tempted regularly, but address this put into the heart, already put into the heart, how that comes about. Well, we know, uh, at least I'm convinced we know, Judas was not a true disciple of Jesus. He had not put his faith. So he was wide open to the work of Satan in his life. As we're going to see a little bit later on in this chapter, Satan actually possesses, if you want to talk about demon possession, Satan actually, or um, uh, Judas is actually possessed by Satan. And so, I mean, the, the reality of Scripture is the devil has no authority over you unless you allow him to have authority over you. And that means for an unbeliever, um, which you know, you, you see an example of Judas, i but absolutely convinced he was an, an unbeliever. He is wide open to Satan's work. And so he willfully and intentionally, this is Judas, he willfully and intentionally does the work that Satan wants him to do. And so he is, he is a tool of Satan, and he's a willing tool of Satan. Now, he will feel remorse for what he did, which is why he commits suicide. Mm-hmm. But Satan, if you have a believer, you know, I'm assuming all of us in this class are believers, Satan has no, you cannot, the Holy Spirit and Satan cannot possess the same human being. 
So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit possesses you, you're indwelt by the Spirit. Satan can't possess you, but Satan can influence you through temptation. And as this is not an original sentence with me, it's one of my teachers said this, but I've never forgotten it. For a believer, Satan has no authority over us as believers, children of God in the family of God, unless we allow him to have authority, which is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, every morning put on the whole armor of God so that you can successfully do battle with Satan and his evil minions. And so our preparatory defense is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's from Ephesians 6. And so this is simply, verse 2, is simply stating what we already have intuited, that's, that Judas is an open tool and instrument of Satan. And he's not pushing back on that. He's not resisting that. He is allowing this to happen because his heart already is hardened, as you're going to see in just a minute. He, in a very real sense, Judas wants nothing to do with Jesus. He sees his calling now to betray Jesus, to get rid of Jesus for money, 30 pieces of silver. He goes in Matthew's account, uh, he goes to the Sanhedrin and says, I'll sell him to you. How much are you willing to pay me? And so they're giving 30 denarii, the price of the slave in the ancient world. Thank that you. That's a long answer, but anyway. All right. Anything else? Jim Woody had a question. He raised yes, Woody, please. I don't have anything right now. I'm going to ask you to explain verse 23 when you get there a little bit. Oh, yeah. Elaborate on that one for me. Give me, can you give me a little bit till we get yes, there? I sure can. I know it's hard to be patient, Woody, but can you can yes, you let me is. get there? All right. Now let's let's go into verse four, which is, of course, this is very familiar. Uh, but in in the context that I've tried to present, which I hope I've done successfully, he laid aside his outer garments, which we would kind of call that the robe, you know, he, he takes off his main garment, he would be in his undergarment, which was a light undergarment. I mean, he's not naked, but he's got a very light undergarment. He took a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin, I'm in verse 5, and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So, I mean, I want you to just be reminded of um, what this would have looked like. Uh, we've talked about this before, but in the ancient world, you didn't sit at a table with chairs like some of you are sitting at a table now with chairs uh, or a meal in a dining room where, you know, the table's elevated and chairs. Not, that is not what it was like. The table was on the floor and you reclined in a perpendicular fashion to the table leaning on one arm. Typically, normally, you leaned on your right arm, you know, your elbow and the, on the, the, the floor, you know, I mean, you can picture it, but I mean, to me, I think that's the most uncomfortable. I can't imagine comfortably eating that way, but that is how they did it. So these men are reclining at the table, their feet, remember, you're perpendicular to the table, your head and your, your, your shoulders are right at the table, you're leaning on your right arm. And so Jesus is going around the circle, or maybe kind of an ellipse, and he's washing the defeat of each one of these disciples. I mean, this, this was a task that was given to the bond servants, which would be the house slaves, the house servants of the host. And so Jesus is doing something. No wealthy person in Judea, in, in Judea would do this. No, no merchant would do this. No tax collector would do this. But here is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who added to his deity humanity, on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples. For me, I've tried to imagine this countless times in the, in the years I've studied this and taught this. For the disciples... I can't imagine that, that, what in the world is he doing? Why is he doing this? And so in verse 6, you 
you get one of the disciples' reaction, and as it normally is, it's Peter. So in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter. So he's been on his knees and kind of shifting. Now he's at Simon Peter's feet. And Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And I, you know, it's impossible using human language to communicate tone of voice, inflection of voice, astonishment. You know, we use exclamation points and things like that. So it's a question, it's rhetorical, but it, it had to be something like this. Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, it, it's got to be a rhetorical question with some astonishment to it. And so Jesus then said, what I am doing, I'm in verse 7, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And we stop there. In other words, Jesus, and, and that was part of the reason I introduced it with the context I did with that slide, Jesus is in effect saying, there is more to what I am doing than just washing the dust off your feet. There is much more here than just being a servant, which was typical in the ancient world, washing off the dust that's on your feet. You have met, maybe just taken a bath earlier in the morning, but your feet are dirty because you were walking the dusty streets of Jerusalem. But I want you to understand, Peter, there's much, much, much more to this. You're not going to understand it now, but you will. Peter then said, you shall never wash my feet. I'm not going to let you do that. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Some of your translations might have it just a little differently. But that phrase, you have no share with me, the importance of that verb is you don't belong to me. You're not one of mine. And so it's an extraordinary declaration by Jesus that starts them, Simon Peter and the others, down the path of understanding what he's really doing. And so when he says this to Peter, Peter's taken aback Lord, I am yours. I followed you. I belong to you. I love you. So, Lord, verse 9, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Hey, Lord, give me a whole bath. This is this important. I want to be bathed all over. Well, that's the typical impulsive Peter who always speaks in hyperbolic language. So Jesus has to say, and I almost, maybe I'm wrong, but I think Jesus might have gone, Peter, the one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. You, and now, note this, you can't see this in your English Bible, but the you at the end of verse 10 is plural. So now he's shifted from focusing on Peter to focusing on all of them, and ultimately all of us. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And in the context of April AD 33, not every one of you is Judas. Judas' feet will be washed, but Judas is not cleansed because he doesn't belong to Jesus. For he knew where he would betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, Jesus is going to explain some of this in the next paragraph, because now the actual washing of the feet, the narrative of that, ends with verse 11. So you have this protestation by Peter. He's protesting, and he pushes back, and then Jesus says, you don't let me do this. You don't belong to me, and Peter is aghast at that thought. And so now Jesus introduces something that he needs to explain to them, which he does in verse 12 through 20. Those, the one who has, I'm going back to verse 10, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, 
but it's completely clean. And you are clean. And the you is plural, but not every one of you. And then John explained, he said that because he was referring to Judas. So now the Lord Jesus will explain to the degree they're going to understand it, but he's explaining why he did what he did. He's going to explain, especially this bathing and cleansing. What, what does all that mean? When he had washed their feet, I'm in verse 12, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. In other words, he reclines back at the table, the way we describe reclining and so on. He then says to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Now, remember those two important words. Teacher is rabbi, and Lord is kurios, but it means the sovereign one. I am the sovereign one of your life. You call me rabbi, and you call me kurios, Lord. And you're right, I am. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, that is clear from what Jesus says in verse 15. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now, the washing of the disciples' feet is a metaphor, a figure of something much larger. So among other things, and go back to the slide that I used at the beginning, among other things, it is the spirit, this demeanor of servanthood. The love, the limitless love of Jesus that John focused on in verse 1 as he introduces the washing of the feet now comes to its apex in living this out. This limitless love of Jesus is lived out in his servant spirit, his servant leadership, his servant giving, his servant yielding. He does not demand his rights as God, Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, but he sets aside those rights for the greater purpose of loving obedience to his Father to serve those who are his by dying for them. So Jesus has said, I have given you a path. That word example in verse 15 is a pattern, a model. This is how I want you to live your life. So he is not focusing on just washing feet, which for you and me in 2020 is meaningless. We don't do anything like that. And so it's, it's, it's an example, an archetype of a life of being a servant. And I this is Jesus speaking. I have shown you how to do that. And I've just given you an example. So what I'm going to tell you here in just a minute, now we're, I'm fast forwarding, but this is where this is going. What I'm going to tell you, a new commandment I'm giving to you, that you should love one another. The word there is agape, love one another. Here is an example of what that looks like. Because to love someone is to serve them. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that husbands you are to love your wives, it's agape, that means you serve them. That is your role as a leader. You're the leader of your family, you're to serve. And it, it's not a call to dictatorial bullying people into submission. It is a servant leading. And Jesus says, I just gave you an example of what I want you to do. Because I just acted out what a slave did. And this is what I want you to do. You will now live a life of serving as you lead. And we know from history, the first, particularly the first two and a half centuries, this lifestyle servanthood is absolutely going to turn the Roman Empire upside down. They will take what Jesus is saying here and apply it across their life. And so he's not done yet. 
But verse 16, he continues now to build on. I've given you an example. Now I'm teaching you what this really means. Verse 16, truly, truly. Remember in Greek, that's amen, amen. I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, that's a first-class condition. So that means literally, because and since you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Oh, to experience the blessing of your Lord and teacher is to do what he's asking you to do. Be a servant. Serve people out of the limitless love of Jesus. Serve people. I am not speaking to all of you. This is verse 18. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Now, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41, 9. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Uh, it's it, To me, that's an unusual passage to quote, but Jesus is the sovereign Lord, so he can do whatever he wants. But he's comparing during the rebellion of Absalom against King David he who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. Judas has eaten bread with me, and he's lifting his heel against me. That's a, that's a Hebrewism. That's a, a euphemism in the Hebrew language of something treacherous being done by someone you thought was your friend. The betrayal of a friend, lifting his heel against Jesus. And, of course, he's referring to Judas I'm telling you this now before it takes place, Jesus says in verse 19. Now, when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Literally in the Greek, it's you may believe that I am. And that's and we talked about that many, many times in our study of the Gospel of John. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We looked at John 8, 58. So what's Jesus saying? I'm telling you what's going to happen. When it happens, it's going to be further evidence that I am, that I'm Yahweh. I'm self-sufficient, self-existent God. I'm just telling you. Yeah. Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever receives the one who sent me, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. This is a foretaste of the Great Commission. This is a foretaste. Yeah. This is a foretaste of what Jesus is going to want them to do with all this truth. Take it out to the world, because here's the promise. If you receive the one who sent me, you receive me. And receive me, you receive the one who sent me. There's that mutuality, mutual independence, interdependence between the members of the Trinity. To receive Jesus, you receive the Father. Receive the Father, you receive Jesus. And there's this call then, the Greek word there's lambano, to receive that the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has said, what he has done, receive it, and you receive the Heavenly Father. You become a part of this loving fellowship of the cleansed, this loving fellowship of the cleansed that Jesus is providing through his death, burial, and resurrection, and through the fellowship that the love of the Father and the Son now becomes the love that characterizes the new covenant community. Hey, Jim, I have, a, I have a question for you. Um, how does forgiveness and, and servanthood work together? Well, um, the, the, the Lord Jesus, well, let's just look at it using the context of Jesus modeling all this for the disciples. The Lord Jesus, as the supreme servant, is willing to forgive even those who have betrayed him. And so he's hanging on the cross, he's dying, and what does he say? Father, forgive them because they know what they're doing. So forgiveness is the mark of a disciple of Jesus because forgiveness was a mark of Jesus, who is the model servant. So, I mean, 
at the level in which you're asking the question, that's the level in which I'm answering the question. I'm not dealing with anything else. I'm just answering that specific question because there are lots of other bunny trails that go with that, but I'm not dealing with it. You ask the question at that level, I'm answering the question at that level. Well, you know, I, I think um, you can look at families and there's animosity among family members, even Christians. Um, and it, my, my perception of it here, and maybe you can weigh in on this, is that uh, if you can forgive, then you can serve. But if you hold a grudge in your life against A or B or C and keep entertaining that in your mind, it's really hard, isn't it, to serve those people um, with the love of God? I mean, I don't know how you could do that if, in fact, you're going to cling to quote, your rights, or you've been violated in some way, or you've, you've been wronged. And so now you, I mean, I, I think that's really important in life, don't you? I mean, to be able to forgive and knowing that we're all imperfect, but without forgiveness, how can we go on as a Christian? And and love others. Well, I mean that's that's right. I mean, uh, you, you know, in, in Ephesians chapter four, verse thirty-one and thirty-two, which is a majestic passage on this, Paul uses all of the terms um, that go with uh, an unwillingness to forgive, and he he speaks of slander, of wrath, of malice, of bitterness, and um, that unwillingness to forgive will create, and this is psychologists tell us all the time, but this practical common sense will lead us to the same conclusion. Bitterness is like a cancer in your heart and bitterness toward a person for whatever reason, whatever that person did to you or said to you or, or whatever it is, if, if you do not have that ability, that supernatural capacity to forgive, whether they accept, whether they ask you for forgiveness or whatever, you must have that. And so then Paul concludes that, you know, in verse 32 of Ephesians 4, you know, with, with kindness, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. So the standard of our forgiveness is not my standard or your standard, it's the standard of God. He has found it in his heart to forgive us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that spirit of kindness and forgiveness and tenderheartedness that's spoken of in verse 32 is modeled by God. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. I'm modeling for you how to live. And so that does involve being able to have kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiving spirit toward those who've wronged you. Because it is, it is a cancer. And it's, a, it's a psychological, emotional cancer that will absolutely eat people up. And therefore, if you have that in your heart, you, you will not be able to serve. And this is the problem that, I mean, I've run across this countless times in, in dealing with families you know, children are bitter at their father because of things he said or done. And therefore, there's a complete breakdown of that relationship. The father isn't asking for forgiveness. The father doesn't care. And the son or the daughter are so bitter and angry at their dad. And it goes on for years and years and years. There's going to be no servant love in that house. Period. It's not going to exist. And so, and I'm not a therapist by any stretch, but in in, in, in pastoral counseling to just help people to see this, now here's what you need to do. Whether you're going to do it or not is up to you, but here's what you have to do. You got to practice Ephesians 4, 31, 32. And so the servant spirit of a father must be manifested by his willingness to forgive when his children don't obey him. And that is a part of that grace and mercy and compassion that also is another part of the circle of temperaments and character traits that Jesus manifests and that we are supposed to manifest. 
And that's why this servant concept that Christ is laying down here and modeling verse 15 is a huge concept. Because serving others in the power and spirit of the limitless love of Jesus, it's very hard to put boundaries on that. Because Christ put virtually no boundaries on how he dealt with people. And so you, you have this extraordinary modeling of Jesus of a lifestyle that is just absolutely supernatural. All right, any other question? Now look at verse 21 through verse 30, and this is about Judas largely, but um, I think we can go through this fairly quickly. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Amen, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this is natural. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is the 12. They're, they're sitting around the table. They're reclining. They've just gone through all this. And then Jesus dumps on them. Tonight, when are you going to betray me? And they're looking at each other. Who? What? what? Verse 23 one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Now, that is the first time in the Gospel of John you see this. You're going to see it a number of additional times in the Gospel of John. This is John himself. This is John, the writer of the Gospel. Literally, it's one of the disciples, the one who could declare, I am loved by Jesus. That's really the meaning of that. So this isn't some self-elevating example of arrogant pride on John's part. This is what everyone can say if they know Jesus as their Savior. I am loved by Jesus. So one of the disciples who could declare, I am loved by Jesus, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. Simon mentioned to him, Simon Peter mentioned to him, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Verse 25. So that disciple, the one who declared, I am loved by Jesus. Now remember, they are reclining, more than likely on the weight of their right arm. And so just picture it. He simply leaned back, and as he leaned back, he's virtually at the breast of Jesus, and he says, Lord, who is it? So, I mean, this isn't some super affectionate John. This is a natural thing to do. What is supernatural is the declaration, I'm loved by Jesus. But he simply leans back because of you know the way they recline and just says, Who is it? Jesus answered in verse 26, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, that he there would be Judas, Satan entered into him. There is possession. This isn't, this isn't being tempted. He now possesses Judas. And so Jesus then says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. The feast there is the feast of unleavened bread and the Passover and all that stuff, or that he should give something to the poor. So the rest of the 11 aren't getting what's going on. But verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he, and that would be Judas, immediately went out. Now notice how John ends this paragraph. He tells us something. It was night. Now at one level, that's not surprising because it was night dark outside. But think of the symbolic meaning of that. 
And that is probably what John is doing here. This is striking an ominous figurative note to what has just happened. Satan now possesses Judas. Judas is going out to finish the conspiracy, the plot to betray Jesus, and it's night. Night is a symbol, darkness is a symbol for the kingdom of Satan. His kingdom is called throughout the Bible the kingdom of darkness. Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 13, that when we put our faith in Christ, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So when John says it was night, he's not just telling us a fact. that oh, by the way, it's dark outside, it's night. This is striking an ominous tone figuratively of what is going on here. We are at the peak of the cosmic battle, the Son of God being betrayed by Satan incarnating another human being. And so the nefarious, evil, ominous, apocalyptic nature of what is going on is captured in that simple statement, and it was night. All right? Now we're going to go from this ominous evil (laughs) that we just studied to one of the Lord's most extraordinary declarations about the characteristic of the new covenant community he's forming. That new covenant community which is forming is going to be marked by a character trait, and that character trait is love. Go back to verse 1 of this chapter, the limitless love of Jesus that is exemplified and manifested by his servant spirit that he wants his followers to also manifest. He's the type, the archetype, the example. So when he had gone out, the he again is Judas, Jesus said, now, ooh, now, with Judas gone, the redemptive plan is now operational. The betrayal is about to, the final phase of the redemptive plan is now operational. That's what he means by this. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. This is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3, another one of those servant songs. But as it is in Isaiah, it is here. The glorification of the Son of Man is related to his death. Nobody looks at it like that. His followers aren't going to look at it like this. Satan's going to think he triumphed. But the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and dying that substitutionary atoning death is the glorification of God. The redemptive plan is reaching its closure. It's almost done. And so I just love that verse. I love verse 31. Now, the operational plan has begun. It's now operational. And the glorification of God, the Father and Son, is about to occur. Verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, just as I said, just as I said to the Jews. And you know, he said that if you go back to chapter seven, you go back to chapter eight, Jesus said that you're going to seek me, but you're not going to be finding me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, and of course, he said that to the Jews in chapter seven, said it to him in chapter eight. What he means is, I'm going to the cross, you can't come, you can't be a part of this. But verse 34, a new commandment I give you. You know, the, the redemptive plan is now operational. I, I'm going to go to the cross, and little children, I'm here with you here just a few more hours, and then that's it. I'm, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected, I'm going to go back to the Father. But here, here is the mark of the new covenant community that I'm creating. 
I'm going to call it a new commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another just as. Now, you got to circle that in your Bible. Just as I have loved you. Verse 1, the limitless love of Jesus. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So what we see in this conclusion, where you're going to see, we won't have time to do that today, but where we see the the denial of Peter uh, prophesied and all that, but what you see here now is the culmination. Jesus is going to go to the cross. He's going to die. It's a substitutionary death. It's fulfilling Isaiah 52 and 53, et cetera, et cetera, all the things we've talked about. But here's the command. This is now the mark of the new covenant community. This is how people will know that you are in my new covenant community, which Jesus is going to call the ecclesia, the church. It's love. And it's not the eros, not the phileo, not the streko. It's the agape love of God. As I have loved you, the limitless love is going to now mark you. And that is what is going to change the Roman Empire. They will not be able to stop that. One Roman historian in 150 AD will write, look how they love one another. And then later on in that same history, he will write, they are turning the Roman world upside down. Militarily, no. With swords and spears, no. With love. And as the plagues go through the Roman cities, the Christians stay and care for the sick. As they discard their old uh, homeless widows and just let their bodies decay in the street, the Christian church will pick up those bodies and treat them with respect and dignity and bury them. When they have a child that they don't want, in most cases it was a girl and they wanted a boy, they'll take the girl out to the mountains, let her die. The Christian church will go out and rescue that little baby. That's love. They will demonstrate to the Roman Empire with them being martyred as, as Polycarp did at, 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 at the great city of Smyrna. He'll say to them, okay, I've served Jesus Christ for 83 years. You're not going to force me by burning me at the stake. I will serve him because I love him. And I'm telling you, I love you. And I'm telling you right now, if you do not confess Jesus Christ as a cross, as the son of God who died on the cross for you, as I am being burned, you will be burned in the eternal fire that God will judge you with. But he's giving, I mean, that's the way they're going to live. They're going to turn everything upside down. Because the mark of the New Covenant community is not militancy, it's not bullying, it's, it's not hammering people into submission, it's loving and serving people. And so the Lord Jesus, and I, I've got to stop here, the Lord Jesus is laying down a profound declaration. I am forming a New Covenant community. He will call it the church. And it's going to be known as having the attributes of love and servanthood. You will love and serve people into the kingdom. And that's what they're going to do. As he said to Peter, you don't understand everything I'm saying, but you will. This is all going to come together for these guys. And, they're going to, and that's what we study in the book of Acts. And they go out and change the world. Got it? All right. I know you're all muted, so your silence. I, you know, I didn't hear the amens. I didn't hear the ex exclamations of joy and excitement and and thrill uh, because you're all muted. I know it was there. I just didn't hear it because you're all muted. Amen. All right. Well, I guess uh, according to my watch, I guess I better stop. This is. I'm so thankful that we could get through this in one sitting. In one setting. I was a. I was a little fearful that. There would be a lot of questions, which is always fine. That's not a problem. But that we may be able to get through it. But we did. I wanted to do all this as a unit, and it's a fantastic unit. I hope you agree. So I would, I would love for you to maybe take a few moments 
and just go back and read through this again. Boy, don't miss everything that Jesus is saying. It is truly, truly a life-changing transformational passage. And the call of Jesus that he's issuing here is the call that's upon you and me. This is how we're supposed to live. All right, I'm going to pray. I'll let you go. And then I'll see you next week. Our Father, we're grateful for the Word of God. Thank you for the privilege and, and tremendous honor we have to study the Word of God together. Uh, thank you for these men and what we've been able to look at today in this quite marvelous passage, very familiar, the washing of the feet of the disciples by the Lord Jesus. But as I hope I was able to get across as we did the exposition of this, that the men see the much deeper and much more meaningful underlying truths of what Jesus is doing, the model that he's setting, the call that he's issuing. So I thank you for that. Uh, may we be the men that uh, Jesus is calling us to be, men who serve and men who love. Help us to be the representatives of you to a dark world. That ominous note, and it was night, is illustrative of the, the awful, devious, horrible work of Satan incarnating Judas, thinking he would destroy and end the redemptive plan, which actually became the glory of God manifested. The cross is the central element of our faith. Without the cross, there'd be no hope. But because it's the cross followed by the resurrection, there's hope. We represent a triumphant Christ, a victorious Christ, who conquered death by dying who conquered and, and uh, satisfied the judgment and wrath of God by being the object of the judgment and wrath of God on the cross. What incredible love, what unimaginable grace. Help us to be men of faith, men of God, who represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. See you next week. Bye. Thank you. you bet. Gentlemen, take care. Be safe.